2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people, to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why, in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and going further to note that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. Over our six episodes of Climate Change, America and the World, the LSE Phelan U.S. Center will bring together expert analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change, from its effects on the forced movement of people to the politicization of climate change in American politics. Our approach is to be diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we are bringing to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series is not only about America, it's about America and the world. Our first three episodes analyze the impacts of climate change from an international perspective that place the United States in conversation with the rest of the world. Our next three episodes will continue to keep global perspectives in mind, but will also be focusing more closely on how climate change manifests within America's own borders. In this fourth episode, we will examine the intersection between climate change and race. Much of American history is built on the politics of race and identity, and so this episode explores whether climate change can also be thought of in racialized ways. A 2022 study from the University of California at Berkeley and Columbia University in New York found that marginalized communities of color in the United States were disproportionately exposed to pollution that can lead to complicating health conditions. Although pollution and climate change are not the same thing, and we're not trying to conflate these two, this study does highlight that when it comes to the environment, different communities, for a variety of reasons, can be more susceptible to some of the causes of climate change. In the case of effects, this is also made apparent when we consider the impact that climate-induced disasters can have on marginalized communities in the U.S. and more globally. Why does this apparent disproportionality exist? And what can we learn about climate change when we consider the identity of its victims? To address these questions, we are joined by two experts on the topic. Professor Laura Polito is the Collins Chair and Professor of Indigenous, Race, and Ethnic Studies and Geography at the University of Oregon and Centennial Professor to the London School of Economics Department of Geography and Environment and the Phelan United States Center. Jeremy Williams is a freelance writer and climate activist. Jeremy is the founder of the Earthbound Report and the author of the 2021 book, Climate Change is Racist, Race, Privilege, and the Struggle for Environmental Justice. By bringing both Professor Polito's and Jeremy Williams' work together, this episode will attempt to address the intersection between climate change and racial injustice in America and the world. In order to analyze the relationship between climate change and race, we should begin by distinguishing environmental racism from other forms of social differences and inequalities, such as class. 
To this end, what is environmental racism and in what ways does it manifest in American society? For Professor Laura Polito, an important attempt to address this question can be done by returning to the racialized foundations of the United States. There's many different manifestations or faces of environmental racism um, in the United States. If you think about the United States as being a country that is formed from a basis of white supremacy, which I believe that it, that it is, it's kind of embedded into the landscape, the laws, the infrastructure of the country. When the term was first coined, it was in reference to waste or like, uh, you know, industrial waste um, and the proximity of people of color, um, of black, indigenous and, and Latinx people, particularly to different waste sites. Um, but then we began to see, oh my gosh, when you think about it and kind of, you know, open up the lens, there's all these um, racial inequalities in so many different arenas. So we can look at the workplace. You know, one of the great examples, of course, is farm workers and their ex exposure to pesticides. We can look at the proximity, particularly of black and brown communities to industrial pollution, which is different from waste, but that's what's actually coming out of the pipes. Again, we have very, very uh, strong evidence for those relationships, the spatial proximity and the vulnerability of who lives there, why they live there, how those patterns have evolved um, over the decades. Professor Polito's point on why certain communities live where they do in the U.S. lies at the heart of understanding environmental racism. One way someone can conceptualize racism is through a focus on the individual, that is, by examining the ways in which a person or a group of people can discriminate negatively against others based on racial characteristics. But this is only one form of racism, and if we limit ourselves to this particular expression, it becomes difficult to see how a phenomenon based in nature can be racist. Jeremy Williams anticipated this point of view when he originally wrote his 2021 book, Climate Change is Racist. Climate change isn't a person, it doesn't have opinions, it can't be racist in any sense. But climate change is unfolding within a world that has racial injustices, and so it can't help but reflect and perpetuate those injustices in new ways. The harm from climate change is following those existing inequalities. So, for example, when um, a natural disaster strikes, you will have parts of town that are uh, majority black neighborhoods, and they are more affected by floods or by storm damage or what have you. And that's often because those were the parts of town that were low lying, uh, they, they had lower land value. And so that's where people with lower incomes naturally built their homes. While, you know, neighborhoods that are on a hill uh, obviously don't get flooded in the same way. And that's where the, you know, the more expensive houses were. So you've got very real damage happening to people because of policies that happened, you know, a long time ago. And sometimes the explicit prejudice is in the past, but the ongoing effects of those prejudices remain. So even though nobody intends to be racist, we still end up with this racial inequality in how climate change is experienced. Is there something particularly unique to the prejudices that undergird racial injustice? Why is it not enough to say that the communities most negatively impacted by climate change are poor communities? Why is the racial or ethnic component important for you and for our understanding of climate change? The problem we have globally and that we have in the US as well is that there's obviously reasons why people are economically disadvantaged, and those often date back to an era where there was explicit prejudice against people. 
So it's never good enough to say it's a matter of wealth and poverty because there are reasons why some people are poor today. And those can sometimes go back to practices like segregation and to, to redlining in US cities, for example, uh, who was allowed to, to own land and who was allowed to do what kind of jobs. And so, yes, we can say, of course, the issue is who is rich and who is poor, but why is that the case? And then when you get behind those questions, you often find that race comes into play. The reason that I ended up writing the book was just because as I was working on climate change issues, one day I was putting up uh, a graph of the countries that have caused climate change the most, that have had the biggest historic emissions and have made the biggest contribution to destabilizing the climate. And then I put a graph next to it of the countries that are most uh, vulnerable to climate change and putting them side by side, I thought, yeah, there's a, there's a rich and poor dynamic here, which we all know about. Um, then I also thought, well, hang on a second, all the damage historically has come from majority white countries in Europe and in North America and places like Australia as well and a few others. But all the countries that are right on the front line and that are really going to suffer most are majority black and brown countries. And there's this huge just racial inequality there that I'd at, at the time I'd never heard anyone talk about it. Um, once I'd seen it, I kind of couldn't unsee it, but because I wasn't really used to talking and speaking about um, race, race issues as, as a white man, I didn't really have the language to understand what I was seeing and couldn't quite understand why no one ever talks about the fact that there's a racial inequality to climate change. Turns out people, of course, had been talking about that. They just hadn't been talking about it in the circles that I move in. And once I started looking into it, I found that there were activists and climate justice campaigners and a whole environmental justice movement in the US that knew full well <laughs> that there was a racial dynamic to climate change, and I needed to catch up with that. The racial justice component to climate change is something that Professor Polito has written and researched on extensively. In both her work and in what Jeremy Williams has just noted, a distinction between the classist and racist components of climate change can actually point to how these forms of differences interact with one another. It is precisely this intersection that makes climate change so damaging and disproportionate for marginalized communities in the United States and around the world. Given this, what are some recent examples of environmental racism at play in the United States? We see it in terms of, for example, particularly, I think, Native and Black people and their vulnerability to um, rising sea levels, right? We can look at Washington, D.C. We can look at some of the Native communities in the Pacific Northwest or down towards um, the Gulf Coast of, uh, of Mexico who are having to relocate or just being abandoned. Another important thing that a lot of people may not be aware of is in the United States, there is a very significant and growing problem with lack of access to potable water. We know uh, a very significant percentage don't. It's overwhelmingly poor people. It's overwhelmingly poor people of color. Or we can look at the case of Flint, Michigan, in which um, there the, uh, the city gets poisoned by lead in the water system. And again, that we can trace that back exactly why does that happen, but that had very serious consequences. And we know that um, uh, hundreds, thousands of children are uh, were exposed to toxic levels of lead. And we know that those changes cannot be reversed. From rising sea levels that are displacing indigenous communities on the coast to the lack of access to potable water for some communities are only two examples of environmental racism in America. Does the state, the government, have a response to these issues? 
where does environmental racism feature in impacting decisions taken by the state? When you ask about the relationship between uh, the role of the state in terms of environmental racism, you know, people typically think that, oh, it's an industrial polluter that is creating all these problems that's you know contaminating people and communities. And that certainly is the majority of the case. But we are also at the state, at the place now where we actually see the state also taking on a greater role in terms of a pollution. And Flint, Michigan is a great example of that. In this case, Flint, Michigan, which is a really uh, poor community in Michigan, poor urban community, um, which had been um, in debt, the state forced it to um, appointed like a budget manager that would oversee all these decisions. And the this person had enormous power and their primary concern was not for the people of, the, not for the well-being of the people of Flint, but rather for the creditors, the bondholders, right? In terms of these different entities being paid. Um, and as part of that calculus and decision, they decided, oh, I can get clean water from this river or I can get cheaper water, which is more contaminated from this other river. And they made that decision, right? So this is somebody acting on behalf of the state. It is a state acting that deliberately decided to poison the people of Flint, Michigan, right? Um, in this particular case, there, you know, there was a, quite an outcry and there was like people blaming the governor and different individuals. And we can certainly do that. But it's also essential that we look at the larger kind of structure and system that allows this to happen in the first place. And the priorities are not the well-being of the people who live there, but of the predators. The story of Flint, Michigan is not only tragic, but also surprising. How can it be possible that in a country as wealthy as the United States, communities are denied access to clean water? Although a complicated picture, the consequence is fairly straightforward. You had in this one town thousands of people exposed to highly contaminated water, and the crucial point is that it didn't need to be this way. As Professor Polito argues, this is a form of environmental racism. The people of Flint complained about the taste and the color of their water, but they were reassured it was safe to drink. This reassurance proved to be deadly. Before we move our conversation to thinking about some potential solutions to issues of environmental racism, let's continue with our examination of its historical roots. Cases like the poisoning of water in Flint, Michigan, or the disproportionate impact of environmental disasters on other marginalized communities don't just happen overnight. In our analysis of contemporary environmental problems, it would be helpful to turn to historical processes. How can we better understand climate change and its impacts through a framework of environmental justice? I think about environmental justice as an umbrella. It's an umbrella framework in which we can think of different forms of, of injustice in terms of the environment. And we can think about that in terms of, um, certainly income would be the most important one. We can think about it in terms of um, you know, global political economy, in terms of like the different levels of power that countries have, where they are in the global division of labor. We can think about it in terms of coloniality, ability, right? And race is one of those lines. In the United States, because of the particular history of the United States, race does seem to be the most prominent line about uh, in terms of, of environmental injustice. 
So there's a big robust literature within, for example, environmental justice, kind of like, well, is it really race that is responsible for these things or how much of is it people's uh, income level, their class status? And those are very important questions to ask. Um, but so far, the research does suggest it really is race, which is probably the leading dividing line in terms of this forms of inequality in the, U in, the U in the US, right? I think globally it might be a little more complicated. Well, if we look at the, the history of the environmental justice movement, it kind of moved out of the civil rights movement and grew out of that. So one of the first things that was mentioned, uh, kind of observed and kind of calculated was how it was so often black communities that were nearest to uh, landfill sites and toxic dump sites, various other facilities that were dirty and polluting. And people started to map these things and they go, well, hang on, this keeps on happening that these sites are located in particular places. And then out off the back of that, you begin to see health inequalities, things like lower birth weight, uh, things like asthma, higher rates of um, lung cancers, and all sorts, all sorts of horrendous conditions that come out of breathing uh, pollution, polluted air, and so on, and polluted water as well. And you go, well, again, there's this huge inequality in who experiences the harm from all these different things. So, and there's a whole variety of different things that have been well studied through the environmental justice movement around pollution and around um, proximity to dump sites, but also to things like refineries and chemical factories and all that kind of stuff. Then when we add climate change into the mix as well, there's a whole series of different risks that, again, fall hardest on minority communities or on black and brown communities. And that includes things like risk of flooding, risks of wildfires. People who live on the wrong side of the levees, for example, where you've got cities on the coast. Um, there have been studies that have shown that black neighborhoods in U.S. cities have uh, higher temperatures during heat waves. They have uh, lower access to green spaces, parks, and street trees, because there often isn't the money to maintain those things. And so when you get a heat wave, it is literally hotter in those neighborhoods. And again, there are historical reasons why that is the case. Um, and there are, his, there are reasons now why those communities have less political power and can't seem to get the attention that they need. Earlier in this episode, Professor Polito pointed to the proximity of communities of color in the United States to landfill sites, and Jeremy Williams has added to that conversation by considering the implications of living in such places, from higher incidence of lung cancer to hotter temperatures during heat waves. As they both noted, the fact that certain communities are located in particular places suggests that there might very well be a much more deliberate component to who ends up being impacted by climate change. It is not sufficient to simply accept that people live where they live without considering the reasons behind their settlements. In the United States, redlining was a discriminatory practice from the 1930s to the 1970s where insurers and credit providers categorized neighborhoods from most desirable to hazardous. In many cases, the cause for a lower grade was directly impacted by the presence of black populations. This grading meant a lot of things, but what is of particular relevance to our discussion is that through this classification, local governments made decisions on where industries could locate their plants and thus pollute those environments. It goes without saying that it was in the neighborhoods deemed already to be hazardous where black populations lived that those plants were set up. 
The effects of these policies are felt to this day and indicate how one's social geography can be impacted by an environmental geography that is susceptible to climate change. The saddest thing, I think, is that you've got communities that, are, that have suffered for decades with the effect of fossil fuels, you know, with the refineries sited next to them or with oil spills into their water and their land and so on. And they suffer from both the causes and the effects of climate change. So they've dealt with the fossil fuels, and now they have to deal with the climate change caused by those fossil fuels. And that's a, a huge double injustice for some really vulnerable communities, which are often black and brown communities in America. Given the systemic nature of this problem, what is the relationship between climate change and other broader systems? How does capitalism interact with environmental racism? It's important, I think, that we, when we think about it, we appreciate the extent to which capitalism is racialized. That means it is embedded in and uh, produces different kinds of racial meanings and differences and inequalities. Um, if we think about how capitalism emerges early on within a globalized, uh, a racialized context in terms of colonization and slavery, um, we can see the, the antecedents for this. And of course, they've changed over time. It's always in search of how can I continue to grow? How can we expand? And one of the ways it does that is producing different forms of value. And there's different ways you can produce value. You can produce a new widget, which is like fantastic and all the world wants, like, you know, an iPhone or something like that. Um, but the other way is to take advantage of existing differences in the landscape. Where can I go where the labor is cheaper? Where can I go where land is less valued? Where can I go where there's less environmental regulation? And these are different ways of taking advantage of different forms. This is a way of taking advantage of different forms of value or inequality within the landscape. And race is one of those processes which is embedded in the landscape. And so therefore, capital will go and be able to harness those distinctions in order to produce more value, in order to produce greater levels of profit. So it's a very fundamental thing. Engaging with different forms of inequalities in the landscape, as Professor Polito said, is immensely important to grappling with the ways the effects of climate change can be more deliberate than accidental. At the global level, this awareness should also inform the way we seek solutions that are inclusive of those most affected by climate change. Christina Febersena, excuse me, one of my former students, um, she did this wonderful dissertation based in Long Beach, California, which is one of the biggest ports in the United States, um, perhaps globally, and uh, has a hor horrendous problems with um, uh, air pollution and air toxicity and all the cargo uh, uh, trucks going into the port and things like this. And uh, asthma is an epidemic in the region, particularly for children, mostly um, black and brown, especially uh, Latino children. And so what is the state's response? One of the things that they've done, one of their like signature programs, is they created this program of promotoras, which are local healthcare workers. And they go to local houses and meet with families and communities, and they tell them how to regulate their children's um, asthma um, by cleaning the house or giving them cleaning products. Here's how you take your kid's medication. So what we see here, this is a very structural problem we're talking about in terms of the epidemic of asthma around the ports, but we're dealing with it in this individualistic way, which does not even begin to address the actual root of the problem. And in the United States, our response, we don't actually acknowledge that's the problem. <laughs> um, we rather frame it as a case, oh my gosh, that's a bad polluter. Let's go do something about it. 
or treating them as one-offs. We have actually tried to regulate entire industries over time. And that's been met with mixed success. You know, early on in the beginning of the environmental movement, like in the 60s and 70s, we had things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and those actually did make a difference. These kind of across the board regulations that were enforced for a period of time. However, soon after that, I think that um, capital uh, industry really got organized and they said, we have to begin to like, you know, um, get involved in these things in order to mitigate those impacts upon us and our ability to operate and to maximize profits. So we've seen a very, very strong pushback on the part of industry. We can talk about who's included in the decision-making around climate change. And for me, it's a fairly basic principle that those who are most affected should be the loudest voices in the room. That's very much not the case at the moment. One of the biggest risks is that even as we try to solve climate change, we exclude people through the decisions that are made. So for example, um, there's lots of buzz around hydrogen at the moment. And there are companies and countries that are signing deals at the moment to produce hydrogen using solar power in, uh, in deserts in countries like Mauritania or in Namibia. Now that's great. You've got these huge deserts with masses of sun, put solar panels all over them, use it to produce hydrogen, and then ship it north into Europe. That's great, except there are communities living right next to those fields full of solar panels who don't have electricity. So one person's solution to you know, cheap energy for Europe manages to exclude people living right next door to the facilities that you're building. Now, there's, obviously, you can build those solar farms and also provide electricity for those that are there locally. But are we hearing those voices, um, you know, those people who are living in poverty in very marginalized parts of the world, Mauritania and, and Namibia? So you can exclude people even as you try and do the right thing. Um, and that's what we need to be aware of. At the same time, we have seen with this growing liberal, neoliberalization in which the state itself is assuming the mentality of the market and also prioritizing the market. And when it does that, that changed the nature of environmental regulation. So what we have here is a lot of state programs and laws and rules, which are in some ways almost performative rather than actually enforcing a law. Okay, actually enforcing a law. If the state assumes the position as the proponent of the marketplace and of an economic system that has been exploitative, then that means that those fighting for climate justice have to work with the state in ways that recognizes this legacy. In her 2017 research paper, Geographies of Race and Ethnicity 2, Environmental Racism, Racial Capitalism, and State-Sanctioned Violence, Professor Polito notes that climate activists should, quote, view the state as a site of contestation rather than as an ally or neutral force, end quote. Before the public and state officials can begin to recognize the links between the effects of climate change and its racialized nature, critical shifts in our conceptualization of both the problem and its historical foundations need to occur. Until that happens, it might be difficult for policy to reflect the urgency that is required to correct historical and present-day wrongs. I think within the U.S. context, you've got um, President Biden, who's bringing forward quite an ambitious climate agenda in some ways. But on the same, at the same time, you've got drilling for new oil and gas. 
And so some of those communities that we were just talked about that have been suffering the effects of uh, fossil fuel pollution and who've been living near refineries and all those kinds of things, they're not going to be any better off because we're still doubling down on fossil fuels, even at the same time as trying to solve the climate change problem in other ways. Um, so we have to keep listening to everybody. We have to make sure that those who are most affected are, are heard and actually have a stake in decision making. And that's much easier to say than it is to do in practice. Although drilling for new oil and gas is not climate change in action, the results of these projects can contribute to climate change. This is why, in March of 2023, a group of environmental and indigenous groups sued the Biden administration over the approval of the Willow Oil and Gas Drilling Project in Alaska, which, the environmentalists argue, does not fully consider the climate risks posed by the project. In this way, marginalized communities are being affected by policies that will contribute to climate change, as well as the eventual effects of climate change that do occur, from hurricanes to droughts. This should force us to consider whether drilling projects, for instance, would occur if we were able to foreground the racialized nature of climate change. Perhaps by locating policies that encourage climate change within a longer historical continuum of injustice towards racially marginalized groups in America, policies could begin to shift. One way we can begin to make this link is through the language we use when discussing the effects of climate change during so-called natural disasters. I remember when I first thought about or learned about the idea that what we call natural disasters are not natural. And that was Michael Watts' work around uh, in silent violence about famine in, um, in Africa, or a particular part of Africa. It is not an act of God. It is not just an act of you know, changing climate and drought and things like that. But it's a whole series of events, of social events, um, which cause it to, to um, take place. So I think, first of all, that term natural disaster is like um, it's a window. I think it's a window into thinking about the ways in which we do and do not talk about environmental problems, social vulnerability, death and destruction. It's a way of um, obscuring absolutely what is going on. And I think it's such a hegemonic concept that we can't even think outside of it. Now, we could look at Katrina, which was Hurricane Katrina was a monster Katrina that hit New Orleans, and it was talked about as a natural disaster. And Cly, um, we went to graduate school together, and his task after this was like, okay, how do I show people the fact that Black people were so disproportionately impacted, over two, about 2,000 um, uh, people died in that, overwhelmingly Black people, that this was... This was years, centuries in the making. And so in order to do that, he goes back 500 years to show us how did New Orleans, how did Louisiana develop, going back to development of slavery and then, you know, moving into the, um, the Reconstruction era, which lasted just, you know, a short period before we really uh, come down with a, uh, a very fierce form of violent white supremacy in the region, which characterized it for a long period, period of time. And, and when you think about it that way, you understand, oh, here's why the people were living where they were, the Black people. Here's why the levees were not fixed, even though they had been warned about it for decades, even though there had been Hurricane Betsy for decades earlier, which again had been a warning about what would happen. So I think that's really important. And this is really one of the jobs of scholars, uh, more than anything, is to help uncover those relationships 
and make them apparent to the larger public about how these quote, quote, natural disasters um, develop. And we really need to, and I think there is movement to shift the frame from natural disaster to, to social disaster, human-made disaster, kind of, of, of recognizing that. But that's the whole thing, isn't it? When people talk about climate change as an environmental issue, as if what we're caring for is the environment. And obviously, you know, the coral reef and the polar bears matter too. But people also live within an environment. <clears throat> and so we're talking about a humanitarian crisis. And we're talking about um, a, a civil rights crisis and all these other things that are kind of piled in there that get obscured when we just talk about it as an environmental issue. In Andy Horowitz's 2020 book, Katrina, A History, 2005 to 2015, Horowitz offers an expose of the historical roots that made Katrina as devastating as it was. Horowitz argues that you need to begin by, quote, seeing disasters in history. And as history demonstrates that the places we live and the disasters that imperil them are at once artifacts of state policy, cultural imagination, economic order, and environmental possibility, end quote. Low-income Black Americans lived in the flood-prone areas of New Orleans because of decades of policies and legislation, from the GI Bill to the National Flood Insurance Program. When accounting for the devastation in 2005, you need to keep in mind policies from throughout the 20th century. In discussing the effects of so-called natural disasters, Professor Polito again emphasizes the importance of history in understanding the intersection of climate change and race. Hurricane Katrina, as an act of nature, was of course not racist in and of itself. It did not choose to disproportionately affect black Americans living in New Orleans, but that is precisely what happened. In fact, in the aftermath of Katrina, recovery programs were designed in ways that came to favor certain groups over others, from white Americans over black Americans, from wealthier people over poorer people. The distinction between what is natural and what is social is crucial and often the difference rests on a fine line. But the language we use can have a fundamental impact on policy formulation. If we simply accept that disasters happen naturally and we resign ourselves a responsibility when it comes to mitigation and response, then it becomes difficult to imagine transformative change. According to a 2013 study from the journal Climactic Change, the effects of Hurricane Katrina were made worse in part because of rising sea levels attributable to global warming. In this one example, we can see how climactic activity disproportionately came to burden poor black people in the United States. Two, and I think there is movement to shift the frame from natural disaster to, to social disaster, human-made disaster. Mike Davis's work, he was, he was one of the first people to flip it out and think about it, not about vulnerability, but about wealthy people. Uh, there's a part of Southern California along the mountainous areas around the coast, Malibu, which burns on a regular basis. It's been burning for centuries. That's just the natural ecology of the region. Um, wealthy, overwhelmingly white people have been moving in there for over the course of the, um, the 20th, latter, particularly latter part of the 20th century into the 21st century. So the place goes on fire, as it always does. And people's homes burn down very tragically, unfortunately, but not unexpectedly. And then we're bailing them out. And then they're rebuilding in the same place, if you can believe it. 
because we are incapable of saying, no, you can't live there. We know it's going to burn and we are subsidizing you living this particular lifestyle. So again, that is, it's natural in terms of the fire being natural. It absolutely belongs in that ecology. People don't belong in that ecology if they're going to set up permanent structures that they then are going to, you know, seek to rebuild on, right? Um, so that's another kind of way of thinking about the natural disaster situation. Does framing the conversation around race help us tackle the roots of climate change and bring about mitigative policies? Race in the American context can be a polarizing topic, and climate change also can be quite polarizing and politicized. How helpful is it really to talk about the intersection between climate change and race? It is a really tricky thing, actually, and this is something that comes up from time to time when people will say, even if you're right, maybe you should just shut up about it because you'll do more good by not bringing race into it. And climate change is controversial enough without triggering all those culture war things uh, by saying that it's racist as well. And um, I have some sympathy with that in that, but I just come back to the fact that if this is real, how can we not talk about it? Like there's a moral obligation to speak the truth about things and to, you know, if someone is being harmed, we have to speak up for that. And that's part of me taking responsibility for this whole business. Um, as a white person, as someone who has benefited from, you know, the development that the UK has had over centuries of industrialization that has caused untold harm on other parts of the world, I have to take responsibility for that and I have to speak the truth. So I know that there will be some people who get very upset at the book title and at the whole idea of bringing together climate change and race. In my experience, the people who get most upset about it were people who were never on board with climate change anyway and were not interested in systemic racism or deny the fact that there is any systemic racism. They're not really going to be the target audience. I was never going to change their minds. So I understand the question, but I'm kind of comfortable with that kind of slightly provocative title and where it gets us if it opens up conversations among those who are actually willing to listen. One important step in moving forwards is by changing the way we think about some of the intentionality of environmental destruction. How far are we from realizing meaningful policy change? And do we need to shape consciousness to achieve effective climate mitigation policies? I think at this particular moment in time, it does not need to be so much on narrative building. An earlier time, I would have said, yes, that's what it is, shaping consciousness, you know, winning, winning hearts and minds, that this is an issue. Um, but I think in the past, you know, decade at least, what we've seen is we've seen a Republican Party, which is so um, intransigent, you know, and it, give me an example of that. When we look at like, um, uh, lots of survey data about how people feel about climate change and climate action. We actually know the vast majority of Republican voters do support climate action. They may not support it the way Democrats do in the same levels or the same policies, but they, they're recognizing this is a problem. We need to act upon it. Does that influence the Republican Party in any way? No. So there's this huge dis- disconnect between public sentiment public, uh, you know, understandings, this drive for power to uh, stay in power. And part of that dynamic, of course, is appealing 
to the most right-wing elements of the electorate, right? So that's why the part of the reason they're taking such extreme stands is to stay in power, to, to cater to this, this particular uh, segment of the voting public that they think will keep them in power. And of course, the other pressure comes from the fact that they're, uh, they're the enablers of the fossil fuel industry. And they have been doing this work for decades and continue to do this work for decades. So the fact that the public would like to see change around climate, it's not even registering. It's not even registering. The shift in discourse may be an important step, but for Professor Polito, it is certainly not enough and perhaps not even where the focus should be given the gulf between discourse and policy. This seems to be true both at the American level and on the global stage. There has been a radical and dramatic change in the discourse around climate change in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um, it really was unimaginable, I think, when we started talking about it. I mean, if we think about kind of like parallel trajectories for discourses around environmental racism and then discourses around climate change, um, they were really disconnected, right? And in the case of people talking about environmental racism and environmental justice, that was really seen as an outlier. Those issues, those people talking about it, we don't know this is really true, right? All these kinds of doubts. And we are now at the place where it's pretty well accepted among the public, certainly in terms of environmental activists, um, increasingly in policymakers, it's real, right? This, this gap, this, mis this misalignment about who is being disproportionately impacted. And so we have seen this big shift. And now when you go to climate events, when you go to marches, um, for the most part, you will see a foregrounding of the issue of climate justice. More and more, we see indigenous people taking the lead in these events and being listened to, right, as well as um, other people of color. So I really think the discourse has moved in a really positive way. Or even the question of reparations, right? Um, the question of climate reparations, which has been raised. When we think about like reparations, that again was seen as like a very fringe thing on the United States about black people. And then when we think about it in terms of climate, you know, it's kind of getting a whole new look at, um, which is not to say that the, the wealthy elite are totally opposed to it and rejecting it, but like more and more people see, oh, that kind of makes sense. You know, we created the problem, they're suffering, Maybe we should be giving them some kind of uh, of compensation, reparations, you know, there's different ways we can frame it. So I do see the discourse shifting um, in a positive way. At the most recent conference of the parties, COP27, the conversation on reparations for climate change and loss and damages was center stage in a way that has not previously been the case. Does this signal a new international approach that recognizes the unevenness of climate change? How will this impact climate change activism moving forward? Now, you're right that in the, the last year or so, we have seen much greater representation from the global south and from indigenous people and all these kind of things. I, my fear is that those voices have, go, have gone from being unheard to being heard and ignored. <laughs> That's the risk. And I don't think there's much to celebrate about that if it doesn't translate into real action. There's lots of talk. And I do, again, I don't want to be down on that because things are happening. But whether they're happening fast enough for the most vulnerable, I'm really not convinced about that just yet. We can't just look at emissions and how to reduce emissions. We also need to be thinking all the time about how do we reduce emissions in a way that prioritizes the most disadvantaged and that um, reduces these kind of pre-existing inequalities. 
So to give a really practical example of that from the town where I'm in, in Luton, if you had 10 million pounds to spend um, on transport, you could spend that subsidizing electric cars and building charge points. And that would benefit people who own cars. If you spent the same 10 million buying electric buses, you would benefit those who ride the bus and you would benefit a lot more people. You would benefit people who are on lower incomes and you would benefit those who live on busy streets where buses are rattling past and belching out diesel fumes you know, right next to their front doors. You would do far more good if you, did, if you took that intersectional approach and you thought about multiple ways, multiple layers of benefits rather than just reducing emissions. So that's a really important thing, that kind of intersectional approach. And then finally, the, the whole restorative justice perspective. So not just how do we stop, how do we just prevent further harm, but how do we make good on the damage that has already been done? Particularly in communities like, for example, the communities in Louisiana in what's known as Cancer Alley, who, who've had uh, decades of, of harm from the fossil fuel industry being relocated right in their neighborhoods. How do you make good on, on decades of health effects and people, people's children being affected and you know, your land and your neighborhoods being polluted? Not enough just to stop that. You have to compensate people in some way. You have to you know, bring a restorative justice perspective. Globally, there's a whole conversation around reparations, which is very complicated. And there are all sorts of competing voices. And I'm still working out what I think about that. But that is a conversation that we have to have beyond the existing kind of loss and damage mechanisms that are in the COP process. That's a conversation that I think will probably roll on for another 50 years or more, how we work out how to compensate the countries that are most harmed by climate change from something which was not their fault. Although the role of the United States in the global fight against climate change is crucial, can the U.S. learn from activists elsewhere? Could acts of solidarity building around the world provide the necessary impetus to impart meaningful change? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I feel like in the world of activism, like anything else, you know, transformation is always possible through engagement, through learning, the circulation of ideas, tactics, methods. And you're totally right. I mean, I could not have ever imagined that there would be a conversation around climate reparations that we're having today, you know, um, and I think that's wonderful. And, you know, due to the work of so many um, people on the ground, um, there's always something we learn from the U.S. experience, given, you know, the size and power of the country and the depth of racial of white supremacy in the country. So, of course, one can draw on the discussion examples of reparations for slavery that have been talked about. Clearly, the global movement is way ahead of the United States, but people should not always look to the United States for leadership. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, when Trump withdrew from the climate, uh, from the Paris Agreement, that was on one level, you know, horrendous. On the other level, it was really gratifying to see the other countries of the world saying, yeah, well, we're moving forward. And I think that kind of rebalance in power is, is not a bad thing you know, um, for other countries to take the lead, which is not to excuse the United States or let off the hook, but it's also, you know, it's such a hegemon in the world. I think it's good for other countries to take the lead, um, to express themselves, to provide leadership, because the United States would never allow, if it could, that discussion to go forward, right? It's gonna block it. Um, and it has has tried to block it, right? 
So let these other countries take the lead that will be more open to it, to at least considering it, allow it to be talked about in these different kinds of ways. So yeah, I think that's a really, uh, the only hopeful thing I could think about these days. <laughs> uh, so for me, one of the most important things is just to listen. And what's been really interesting in, in the course of researching the book is to discover just how much good information there is out there, how many passionate campaigners there have been over the years, people like uh, Robert Bullard and uh, Dr. Beverly Wright, who have been talking about environmental justice for decades. Um, and then you've also got this whole new generation of activists who have really kind of brought together race and climate change to talk about doing uh, climate action in an intersectional way. So there's loads of people who are, I find really inspiring, who are finding new ways to um, explain and um, explore climate change and race together. Throughout this episode, Professor Polito and Jeremy Williams have asked us to not separate past injustices with the way inequalities manifest in the present. An important part of the global conversation on climate change is to locate novel ways to help deliver environmental justice. From our discussion, it seems unlikely that justice can be delivered without an appropriate reckoning with the past and without being explicit in naming the groups most negatively impacted by climate change. Racism can manifest in ways that are less obvious, in ways that are systemic and therefore perhaps more difficult to point out because the disparity in question can often be chalked up to other phenomena as well. What we've discussed in this episode, however, underlines how racist policies have allowed for or even created the conditions that disproportionately burden non-European populations around the world. In episode two of our series, we examined how climate change can contribute to the forced movement of people. Although not exclusive to one population, it is poor people in the global south and indigenous and black populations in the United States that are most susceptible to climate migration. This one example that we talked about in episode two of our series highlights the intersection of climate change and race. It would be fitting to conclude this episode by turning to the words posed by the Haitian anthropologist Michel Rolf Trouillot, who noted in his influential work, Silencing the Past, that history is the fruit of power. And so one of the ways we can begin to empower the most vulnerable communities to the effects of climate change is by making this fruit visible to all instead of simply accepting that some groups of people are doomed to suffer the continuing effects of climate change as well as be subjected to its industrial causes. By being blind to history, it becomes easier to think of climate change-induced disasters, for instance, as being simply natural phenomenon, divorced of its social context. In this series, we have discussed the idea of loss and damages, which recognizes that there are some irreversible calamities of climate change that cannot be mitigated against. In the next episode of Climate Change, America and the World, we will build upon this framework and examine the costs of climate change in the US and elsewhere from both a financial and human perspective. This episode was produced by the LSE Phelan U.S. Center by Mohit Malik, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. The music from this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the fourth episode of this climate change series. Please feel free to rate and review this episode on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'll see you next time. 